Happy Monday, everybody. So good to be together again. So fun to just spend this weekend together. And um, thank God for Mount Hermon. I, I, I know you would expect us to say that, but we can clap for that. Thank you, Lord. But, um, you know, I, I just am thanking God today for the staff. And if you see a staff, I want to say hug a staff person, but uh, it's COVID and we can't really do that. But just thank them. You have no idea. I have no idea what they have endured this year. And uh, all, and everyone has, but um, this staff has really shown courage, perseverance, humble faithfulness, and dependence on the Lord. And God is so faithful. I know my story in COVID was looking through the windshield going, I have no idea how I'm going to get to where you want me to go. And then at night, looking in the rearview mirror, shaking my head going, you were so faithful. Why didn't I trust you? And uh, this staff is, I'm just so thankful God has raised them up for such a time as this. So praise God. Praise God. All right, where have we been? We've got work to do this morning. Uh, you have a field guide. I haven't explained this fully, but um, you know, it's, if you want to take notes. But after every talk, you'll see a section called Beyond Camp. If you want to go home, and I actually learned this from Pondy because they do this with their camps. They have a 21-day guide to take you home. And I'm like, that is so good. So if you want to go home and go a little deeper as you review your notes, that's what Beyond Camp is. The last page inside are about 17 more questions. Um, you can Google questions Jesus asked. That's where I started putting this all together. There's over, as I told you, over 300. And um, what I'm doing is just taking one a week and sitting in it. Uh, because remember, Jesus doesn't ask them so he can get information. He asks them for our transformation. He doesn't ask them so he could have the answer. We'll see today in John 21, Peter leans on his omniscience and says, you know all things. He asks them so we can gain awareness. And so maybe, you know, that could be your practice for coming out of here. Take one a day and just meditate on the question and let the Holy Spirit bring about transformation in you. Uh, the question I'm working on this week, it's not in here, but it's from John 14, 9, uh, the upper room discourse when Jesus was leaving, Philip raised his hand. I don't know if he raised his hand, but he said, um, when Jesus said, you know, you know me, and, and, and Philip said, just show us the Father. And, and Peter said, I'm sorry, Jesus said, don't you know me by now? Don't you know me by now? Uh, that question as I've been sitting in that, having walked with the Lord for 35 years, not, it hasn't condemned me, but it's brought about great conviction and inspiration in me. So if that's a resource for you, if that brings value to you, praise God, use it. The last page just tells you a little bit about the ministry of TBC, and I, I would invite you to go to the website, I, uh, especially since most of you are from the Bay Area, to pray over and for our Bay Area. We are better together. And that's what put, why God put TBC on the planet. So uh, that's where we are. That's the field guide. And let me pray. And we're going to look at this final question for our time. Do you love me? Do you love me? And let's, uh, let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Well, here we are again, Lord. And we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for... Um, just your faithfulness and the way, Jesus, you have 
held everything together to bring us to this moment. We celebrate this moment because we have no guarantees of future moments. So thank you. We love you. And Lord, we pray again that you would use your word to speak to our hearts. That we could uh, sit in it and again, as we prayed every morning, that you would emerge in 3D through your Holy Spirit from the pages of scriptures as we step as if we were right in the Sea of Galilee on the shore experiencing this firsthand. Our hearts are open. Guide us, we pray. In Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Uh, maybe you haven't heard of, uh, but I've come across a Japanese artistic form uh, called kintsugi. Have you heard of kintsugi? Someone has. One of us has. Great. Two of us have. Uh, rather than tossing broken pieces of ceramics into trash, uh, artisans, craftsmen in Japan have taken on the art of kintsugi, and they've taken the broken pieces, and uh, kintsugi in Japanese means golden joinery. They have repieced the brokenness and rather than hide the brokenness, they've uh, put in the lacquer gold or platinum or silver to actually highlight the brokenness in the art and highlight the brokenness in the original piece and actually make the brokenness the feature, incorporating them in a design, often creating something more beautiful than the original. The philosophy behind this is to value the brokenness as part of the object's history rather than seeing it as something to disguise. In contrast to the Western philosophy, which strives for perfection and looks to hide brokenness, Kintsugi acknowledges it and pieces it back together into something much more beautiful. As an art, Kintsugi uh, will make a mended vessel more beautiful, like I said, than the original. Where am I going with this? I believe God is the master artist and creator of Kintsugi. We, many times in the West, think we need to hide our brokenness, but God says, oh, no, no, no. Somehow our brokenness magnifies God's grace and speaks volumes about the crucifixion and the value of the crucifixion. Uh, to God and to us and to others. Ephesians 2.10 would serve us well here. And many of you know this verse, Ephesians 2.10. It's not in your notes. This is extra credit, everybody. You're welcome. It says this, we are God's, what? Masterpiece, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. That will serve us well when we come off this mountain. That word masterpiece, you may have heard this before. In the Greek language, it is the word poema. We are God's poema. We are God's poetry, if you will. In the first century, when a work of art defined the artist, uh, his magnus opus, if you will, uh, that was called a poema. God captures that word, puts it into his word, and says, human beings, my work in you, if I can use it this way, my kintsugi through you makes you my poema. You are my masterpiece. And rather than hiding in a museum, God puts us on full display out in the world and actually prepares good works in advance for us to walk into. 
I want you to see how this process works and how God takes broken vessels that come to him and creates kintsugi out of them, or as a master surgeon, repairs and restores us. Through this question, do you love me? We're going to go to the shore of Galilee, meet me in John chapter 21, and we're going to look at how God used uh, the brokenness of Peter to be restored and created into a masterpiece. I'm gonna do what I haven't done the first two times. I'm gonna actually just read the whole passage, John 21, one to 14, to give us context. So if you have your Bibles, I'm reading now the NIV. Follow along with me, it won't be on the screen. This is post-resurrection. Jesus told his disciples, go to Galilee and wait for me on a mountain. He told them that. But Peter's not good at waiting. And Peter is the prime figure in our story here. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told him. And uh, because of the way this is worded, this wasn't just a random recreation, killing time thing. The way Peter said this and the way that the rest of the syntax of the language, he was going back to his career. The Jesus thing was over. Even though he had appeared to him, he was saying, you know what? And I think it was because of this. I'm too broken. I've gone too far. Remember, he has not yet met Jesus face to face and restored the brokenness of denying him three times. And Peter felt what many of you feel like, I have felt this from time to time, my blow it has disqualified me from ever being used by God's again, by God again. The dreams are dashed. I've gone too far. I know he's a savior, but I'm a worse sinner than he is at being a savior and I've outrun my coverage, if you will, for God's grace. I believe that's what's going through the mind of Peter. We'll go with you. Peter's a leader, so we'll go with you. So that night, they went out and got into, and here's the definitive, the boat, not a boat. It's as if Peter went back to the dock, pulled back the cover, pulled off everything off his old fishing gear, and said, well, here we are again. Went back to the boat, and by night, he'd been here before. They caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. We'll get to this later, but it is so worshipful and encouraging to me how through the whole crucifixion and resurrection experience, Jesus pursued Peter. I mean, as if he, you know, you're gonna take on the whole weight of the sin of the world, right? You are gonna become the worst of every person who ever lived and then face the wrath of God for that. You'd think he'd be consumed with himself, but even with that, Jesus was concerned for others And from the upper room to this point, he has Peter in his sights. And we'll see that throughout the whole process. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. The disciples didn't realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you caught any fish? No, they answered. Throw your net on the right side of the boat. Does this sound familiar at all, right? He's reliving and Jesus is intentionally putting something together for them. When they did, They were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, that's how he always described himself in his book, in his gospel. He never self-described himself as John because he could never get over the fact that Jesus loved him. 
So he always called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved in his gospel. Um, said to Peter, it's the Lord. Now imagine what goes through the mind of Peter at that point. As Simon Peter heard it, heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garments around him for he'd taken it off. He jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing in a net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning, coals there with fish on it, and some bread. The only time we see Jesus cooking in the Gospels, for all you Bible trivia buffs. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've just caught. That's a great aspect, and that'll serve us well coming off the mountain. Great metaphor for ministry. Jesus cooks, we cook. We, he doesn't say just eat the fish I cooked. He dignifies us by saying, you know what? Bring some of your labor to me and let me touch it and make it supernatural. So Simon Peter climbed back in the boat, dragged the net to shore. It was full of fish. Remember, he hasn't had a conversation with Jesus yet. He's just doing what he tells him. But even with so many fish, the net was torn. Jesus said, come on, sit down, let's have breakfast. Do you believe the graciousness? Isn't it beautiful of Jesus? This should give us encouragement when we've blown it and when we come to the Lord in our practice of confession that God never looks at us with disgust in Christ. He never looks at us with like, really? You blew it again? As I ruminate on the question, don't you know me by now? I don't sit and look and think of Jesus asking that with pointing his finger at me but it's an invitation for further knowledge and love expressed to me. And this is what he's doing with them. Come on, he cares about their whole needs. Let's eat together. See, they were banking on the character of Jesus that didn't represent Jesus at all. We all do that to some degree. And Jesus is reframing again because we have to represent who God really is. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus took bread, gave it to them, as he did with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we all have that place where we've gone too far or did what we thought we shouldn't do or we came to our senses and realized, oh my gosh, I've sinned, I've let the Lord down. And the dreams that we have, maybe dreams God gave you here this weekend as you listened to Tim or uh, sat in worship or interacted with each other or, or heard questions Jesus asked you've had dreams and then yet you look at your own life and you think there's no way that equation doesn't work my life doesn't add up to those dreams I fall short what do we do in times like that how does Jesus meet us in our broken dreams and desire how does Jesus create kintsugi so the backstory. come back with me to the upper room and let's look at a little further and then we'll dive in uh, a little further. The upper room, Jesus predicted Peter would deny him. Matthew records in the upper room that every one of the disciples stated uh, in front of all the other disciples, Peter steps up and says, if everyone else falls away, I will never deny you, Lord. And then he denies Jesus twice. On the third time of the denial, it's recorded in the scripture, he doesn't just deny Christ, he calls down curses on himself. I will blankety blank, blankety blank, God could send me, uh, forgive the, the, God could send me, there's kids here, uh, in the place other than heaven, if I ever deny, if I ever knew that man. 
And the moment he curses, calls down curses on himself in that denial, Luke records Jesus and Peter's eyes met. Somehow Jesus was being transported from one trial, he went through six illegal trials in the night, from one trial to another, and at that time, sovereignly, their eyes met. And I would just ask you, in your opinion, what is the look in Jesus' eyes after he hears one of his closest friends call down curses on himself if he ever knew him? That will tell you a lot of your view of grace and your view of God. I believe the look in Jesus' eyes at that moment was, Peter, 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 this doesn't define you. I'm going to the cross. I'm going through hell myself. But don't let this define you. Stay with me, Peter. It's what he says to you and me. It's why he loves making spiritual kintsugi. Peter leaves and weeps bitterly. Heaving, the, the Greek language is asphyxiating, snot-producing, weeping. He is so remorseful, but hear me, that isn't repentance. Uh, repentance is not when you get caught. Repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change, when there's actually a change that takes place. This is remorse. So Peter's exposed. He's a poser. He's a moral rebel. His sin, like all our sin, distanced him from the Savior. He wasn't the man he projected to be. And while he was destined to lead the Jesus movement, now in his own mind, he comes to grips, I am a, I am a failure. I have forfeited. My confidence is stolen. My character is exposed. Who in the world would ever put Humpty Dumpty back together again? Now we go to Galilee. Jesus is risen. We just read about it. He appeared two times, told the disciples to wait. Peter's not good at waiting. He goes back to what he knew, and then he sees Jesus on the shore. How does Jesus surgically repair, or as an artist, bring about Kintsugi? Here's the first thing he does. He opens the wound. He opens the wound. As you see, read the story, it comes upon the reader, and it certainly came upon Peter. Jesus is recreating the scene of that fateful night. Peter denied Christ how many times? He asked, Jesus asked Peter, how many times do you love me? Three times. Jesus, uh, Peter denied Christ by a fire. Jesus has recreated a fire. It's almost as if he takes Peter by the nape of the neck and focuses his worst sin, puts his nose in it, if you will, not to condemn him, but to repurpose him for a better future. Because humans, we are so good at denial. We are so good at relabeling our sin so it could feel better to us, right? So Jesus has to create this wound and recreate the scene. Verse 15, when they finish eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
See, Peter knows, and there's an interplay with words. Many of you have heard this. Jesus uses the term twice when he asks the question, do you love me, agape love, agapeo is the actual word. Do you, do you love me unconditionally? Peter, you stood in front of everybody and said, even if all these others deny you, I will not deny you. You projected a bold love. Do you love me more than these? And I actually believe he was talking about the nets, the boats, and all that he had gone back to. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He uses a different word for love, a, a conditional love, a less than agape love. I phileo you. I friendship love you. I love you with conditions. Peter's starting to come to grips with who he truly is. Jesus is opening the wound and saying to him, you weren't the man you thought you were. I always knew that, but you didn't know that. Do you love me more than these? Jesus asked three times, do you love me? Because he knows what we don't always know, but we know it in other realms. We will always follow what we love. We'll always pursue and serve what we love. We will sacrifice for what we love and who we love. We do that early on in our, uh, not early on, but late in our dating career, before I had asked Anne to marry me, uh, we, you know, when I knew we were in love, we had grown to love each other. I just didn't know if it was a love you build a marriage on. We had gone skiing. I was a youth pastor, and we'd taken a bunch of kids uh, up to our ski trip, and um, I remember we were going up on a lift. I was not a good skier. Anne was a great skier, so I projected to be a great skier. And so she takes me up on a blue square uh, lift. Uh, I was a green circle kind of skier, like, like, you know, the kind that you turn your legs in and just that. But Ann was great. And she's like, come on, let's go up. Have you ever been on a blue, a blue square? I'm like, oh, I do them all the time. Never done them before. I confessed all this to her, she knows. So uh, we're going up and talking, and we come up to the end of the lift. I was scared to get off the lift, okay? And, and, uh, and right before she gets off the chair, and this is who my wife is, she turns to me and says, if you catch me, you can keep me, and just comes off the lift and goes down. And I'm like, woohoo, friends, I have never skied a better run in my whole life. I mean, you name it, I was taking jumps. I was like, let's go. I've been pursuing her for 31 years. And I've been pursuing her, why? Because I love her. And I realized what those men told me on the Marin Headlands that night with the second most important question ever brought to me was that she is the greatest gift next to salvation in my life. In over 30 years, I have not been married to one woman. I've been married to multiple iterations of Anne Griffith. Why? Because I love her. And when you love, you pursue. When you love, you sacrifice. When you love, you serve. So Jesus comes to the core of Peter and he opens the wound. And it's not that he was naughty or nasty or he crossed a boundary. All that is true. But Jesus recategorized sin where it should be, relational terms. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? He opens the wound. And then he unmasks the sin to expose it for what it is. Verse 15 to 17, we'll go back into those. I want to bring out one other aspect of this. 
Remember uh, the first night, Peter was renamed into Peter, called the rock, right? Look what Jesus calls him here. Many of us know this, but let's just remind ourselves of this. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, by the way, John, uh, every time except on one time, calls Peter Simon Peter, as if to put his old name and new name together to talk about who he was and who he is now in Christ. It's actually a cool thing. But Jesus says, Simon, son of John, he goes back to his old name. Do you love me more than these? Verse 16, again he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? The third time he said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John means wanderer, drifter, vacillator. See, when Peter acted like his old self, Jesus called him by his old name. See, he never speaks about Peter's behavior. In this whole restoration kintsugi process, Jesus never says, now Peter, are you ever going to lie again? No, Lord, I'm never going to lie again. Now, Peter, are you ever going to be ashamed of me again? No, Lord, I'll never be ashamed of you again. Because he knows, Jesus knows, sin is internal and spiritual long before it's external and expressed. Even as a parent, I learned early on, I can curb my young daughter's behavior, but I can't, uh, I'm not about parent uh, behavior management. I want to shape a heart. And I have to partner with God to shape their heart. Peter's signature sin at the core was pride. It was pride. And Jesus could go after the denial and he could go after the hypocrisy and all of that, but he wouldn't get to the core. After he opens the wound, he has to address the core. To do that, he has to bring about pain. You look at Peter's life and the pride. You know, uh, early on when Peter was first called by Jesus, when he said, come follow me, the first thing Peter said was, get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He wasn't focused on Christ or on the other. He was focused on him. I don't, I don't even qualify to follow you. It's as, if, it's as if following Jesus was ever about us. It's about him, my friends. As we get off this mountain, as we look at what we're going to do this year and how we're going to join Jesus this year, it's not about you. It's about being available for him. So from the start, we see pride in Peter in the upper room. We've talked about it in front of all the others. Think how this made them feel. If everyone else falls away, I won't. Pride. By the fire, when he was asked to align with Jesus, what does he do? Proudly, he, he thinks about himself, and he just thinks of the worst thing. What would distance me and show that I don't, am not a follower of Jesus, I don't even associate with him? I'll call curses on myself. He'll stop at no end to protect himself. And so Jesus goes to the core of his identity, his name, and says, you aren't who you thought you were, Peter. You know, it's a good thing to sit before the Lord and confess. It's a great thing to ask the Holy Spirit in a Psalm 139 way. What is at the core that's fueling my behavior? 
and allow the Holy Spirit to bring up those things. Not to hurt you. My wife taught me an axiom that we taught our daughters. What God brings to the light, he wants to heal. He wants to heal. And so she has prayed and taught me to pray for our daughters. Bring their sin to light. That is a scary prayer as a parent. I could take, I could take an hour and tell you uh, some of the painful things we've come across that God's brought to the light in our daughters' lives. And we bring them to them, and they shake their head and go, how did you find out? We're like, we've been praying. But not to condemn. We want this to heal. And then you confess. First uh, John 1, 9 would serve us well here. If we uh, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then get to the core, heal us from all unrighteousness. Do you know what the word confession means in the Greek language? Uh, it's a compound word, homo logeo. Logos, word, homo, same, same word. It's saying to God and agreeing with God, this is sin. I am forgiven. Your power can take me out of this. Agreement with God. That's what's going on here. And then, look at this. He opens the wound. He unmasks the sin. Now he's got Peter where he wants him. And some commentators talk about this experience is Peter's true conversion experience. He was never the same after this encounter with Jesus. Jesus didn't show up with Peter with condemnation. He came on a rescue mission, just like he does for you and me. He forgives the sin and allows the healing to begin. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Here's the phrase that I want us to camp out on, this next line. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? What happened there? First two times, Jesus says, do you agape me? Do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Peter says, uh, you know, I phileo you. Uh, I, I have a friendship love with you, Jesus. I'm not the man I thought I was, Jesus. The third time, Jesus changes his word and says, okay, Peter, I'll meet you right there. Do you phileo me? Where do we find Agreement. See, Peter thought the only way he could serve God if it was unconditional, and that is a great way to serve God. But then he came to grips with his humanity and says, I fall so short from who I thought I was, and I thought that discounted me, and that's why I went back to fishing. That's why my dreams were dashed. I thought you only used superstars who love you unconditionally, who never, never fail, but I have fallen short. I only friendship love you. And Peter hears the third time, okay, Peter, do you friendship love me? And Peter's hurt because he comes to grips with the fact, I'm not the man I thought I was. And he says, you know all things. He's banking on his omniscience. That's really important. He's not telling Jesus anything he doesn't know. He says, I just, I just friendship love you. I want to love you unconditionally. I can't get there on my own. At this point, Jesus turns to Peter and says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. See, there's two types of sorrow, and we're going we're gonna to land the plane here. Uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, we talk about two types of sorrow. It's not in your notes, so if you just write that down, uh, I think I have it on the screen, I do. Godly sorrow brings repentance, a, a change of mind that leads to a change of action. 
And it leads to salvation, leads to the rescue. Godly sorrow plus repentance leads to the life that God had in mind when he created you in the first place. Worldly sorrow brings death. What's the difference? Worldly sorrow, let's go there. You grieve over yourself. It's really self-centered sorrow. You look at your behavior and you grieve at the consequences to you. What your behavior, what is lost for you, what, it, uh, what is taken away from you. It's self-pity. Look what my sin cost me. You repent because you were caught only to the degree you were caught. Trust me as a pastor and even looking in the mirror, I see this all the time. People are caught in a relationship. Something's happened. There's been a betrayal. They were caught. They only confessed to the degree they were caught. Uh, the poster child for worldly sorrow, Judas. He was sorrowful. He wanted to give back the money, but he didn't return to Christ. Godly sorrow, you grieve over your Savior. You look at your sin and grieve over what it's done to God. You realize, man, what I did put Jesus on the cross. You grieve over the destruction you've caused in your, your sin to God's image bearers. Look at what my sin cost them. You repent because you know you were accepted and there's permanent healing that leads to life. Poster child of godly sorrow is Peter. He was never the same after this moment. When God and Jesus broke him down, the last thing, one of the last things he said to him in verse 19 was this. Follow me, Peter. And that's what I leave you with. Let's follow Jesus. You know, when we were starting Transforming the Bay with Christ, and I say we, it started with um, a businessman who had gathered a group of pastors and a group of businesswomen and men and praying through what could happen if we were together were better uh, than what we did apart in our own little kingdoms uh, about eight years ago, 2013. Um, we thought about what do we call this, this movement that we want to create and join Jesus. And we thought about taking Christ to the bay, um, TCB. <laughs> uh, and then we realized, wait a second, theologically, that's not right. We don't need to take Jesus anywhere. I bet he's already there. And now TBC is, uh, you know, as far north as Hillsburg, as far south as Salinas. Uh, it's as far east as Vacaville, Far west is well, Santa Cruz. A couple hundred churches, 20 regions, and we've never taken Jesus anywhere. As we expanded more and more, as it's grown, we've realized, oh my gosh, Jesus is already here. We get to join him and do things with him. I'm done praying that God uses me because in my life, I've used people. It hasn't been good. Now I'm asking God, where can I join in in what you're doing? So as you leave here, keep a soft, tender heart for God. As you look in the mirror and look at where you've fallen short and where you, have, um, where you are discouraged and you realize I'm not the woman, I'm not the man I thought I was, that doesn't disqualify you. God is in the masterpiece-making business.
the kitsugi making business. Your brokenness is part of what qualifies you with God's grace. I want to encourage you with one final video uh, that we produced at TBC to encourage you as you leave how God wants to invite you to join him in what he's doing wherever you go. Watch this and then we'll pray. The Bay Area, the fourth largest urban area in the United States. Home to 256 cities and 8 million people. 11 counties brimming with life. Or as we call it, home. Our home. People in the past were drawn to this place we call our home for its rich soil and gold. Today the Bay Area has come to be rich in diversity, technology, and wealth making it one of the largest urban centers and tech capital of the world. Yet there exists a deep vacuum in the hearts of 8 million people who are haunted trying to find a meaningful narrative. Who, desperate for meaning, worship at the altar of career. Or money. Or success. Or progress. There are thousands of places where men and women go to find meaning, find fulfillment, find life. They will not find it. Because meaning and fulfillment and life are not found in money. Or sport. Or career. Or fame or technology, or innovation, as wonderful as these things are. They cannot change a human heart. Only Jesus can. Only the Holy Spirit. Only God the Father can do that. Who will tell them? Who will tell the people of this great city about the hope of the gospel? Paul said, we are Christ's ambassadors. It is as though God himself were making his appeal through us. God is making his appeal through us? You and I? But what can you and I do? I mean, really? Do we forget that Jesus said that the tiniest seed, the mustard seed, contains a plant that will overtake everything? What if God has been preparing you and me to be that small seed of faith? What if he's planted you, the brilliant entrepreneur, to seek more than greed and green, but to seek common good? What if he's planted the educator to change more than test scores, but change young lives? What if he's planted you, the government official who wants to put the servant and the public back in public servant? And what if God has been preparing this great area to receive that seed? This valley is fertile, don't you know? Let us take this gospel out. Jesus has come to us. Let us take Jesus to the people. We are not done. God is not done. Oh no. It's just getting started. Pray with me. Just for a moment of silence, would you invite the Holy Spirit to prompt you, where does Jesus invite you to follow him? What are the unexpected places in unexpected ways where you show up and join Jesus in his redemption project for our Bay Area? Just for a moment, can you take your eyes off yourself and live back in those dreams that God put on your heart? Can you hear the words of Peter? You know all things. 
You know I love you. Yeah, I fall short of what I had hoped for. But if you could use where I am, who I am, I'll join you. And I'll show up to be the aroma of Christ. I will pray up. I will invest up in your kingdom agenda and love who you love. Here I am. Send me. Lord, I'm sure there's not many in this room and in, out and outside that wouldn't answer this question, do you love me, with a yes. We do love you. Life is found in you. So we give ourselves anew again with all that we are, brokenness, everything that we are, we just give ourselves to you to join you in what you want to do in and through our lives. You are spreading through us the fragrance of the knowledge of you. We trust you, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, like they meant it, all God's people said, Amen. Awesome.